turn with me to the book of Romans in chapter 3. The book of Romans in chapter 3. Our focus this morning is going to be particularly on verse 12, but I want to begin reading in verse 9. So Romans chapter 3, and I'm going to begin reading for us in verse 9. Here's what we read. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No. Not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Well, let me remind you of where we are in this letter and what we are doing. Our God is graciously opening up for us through the Apostle Paul, the gospel itself. This is the message that is the power of God for salvation to all who believe it. This is the message upon which the destinies of men and women rest. This is the message that is hated by Satan, hated by the world, hated by our own flesh. This is the message that turns hardened sinners into softened saints. This is the message that causes hearts of stone to melt and to fall madly in love with the true God. It is the gospel that sustains Christians when we believe we are at the end of our ropes. It is the gospel that strengthens us when we are weak. It comforts us when we are anxious. It speaks peace to our stormy hearts. Ultimately, this is the message that the Spirit of God uses to bring us safely into His own bosom in heaven. This gospel is the message that has been entrusted to the church of Christ. It is constantly under attack, and there are billions in our world who desperately need to hear it. That is what this book is about. It's about this message, this all-important message called the gospel. And we are at the end of the first portion of Paul's explanation of the gospel. This is, this is point one in Paul's gospel message. And point one in the gospel message is that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It is the truth that all are corrupt before God. All are unrighteous before His holy face. All are therefore under His wrath and headed towards an eternity in hell. All humanity is unrighteous and under the wrath of God. That is the first point of the gospel. And Paul is bringing that point home. 
by using quotation after Old Testament quotation after Old Testament quotation to prove his point. And as he uses these Old Testament quotes, he is emphasizing two truths, two doctrines. Do you remember what they are? I've mentioned them the last two, three weeks in a row, and we'll be mentioning them the next two. So these are very important. Make sure you hear them. The two doctrines that Paul is specifically emphasizing in verses 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18 are the universality of sin, the universality of sin, that, there, that everyone is a sinner, that there is none righteous, no, not one, none who do good, there are no exceptions apart from our Lord. All humanity is sinful. So he wants us to, to feel here from these verses the weight of the, the truth of the universality of sin. And then the second doctrine that he is teaching us is the doctrine of total depravity. The reality that there is not a part of our lives, there is not a part of our lives that is not tainted by sin. And we've seen the progression every week. Let me remind you again. Verse 10 deals with who we are in our souls. None is righteous. No, not one. At the core of our being, we are unrighteous. Verse 11, because we have unrighteous hearts, our minds are affected. We do not understand the things of God. And because our hearts are defiled and our minds are defiled, our wills are affected by sin. And therefore, no one seeks for God as we ought. The one person in the world who can save us, God Himself, is the one whom we will not seek. In verse 12, not only does this depravity affect our inner core, our, our souls, not only does it affect our minds and our wills, but it does affect our uh, deeds so that natural man can no longer do anything good, truly good in God's sight. Verses 13 and 14, sin affects our mouths and our tongues. So that, so that these things that were created to be used for good are now being used for evil. Our tongues, which were created to worship and bless, are now being used to curse. Verses 15, 16, and 17, sin has affected our feet, our actions, the paths that we take. And then in verse 18, Paul sums up the human condition. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, all of these verses are describing men, women, boys, and girls apart from the saving grace of God. This is natural humanity. And unless grace intervenes, this is who we are. Now, our focus this morning is verse 12. And there are three statements here. Three statements. All have turned aside. Together, they have become worthless and no one does good, not even one. We're going to look briefly at each of these three statements. We're going to ask the same three questions we've been asking for the last two weeks. Where does the quote come from? What does the quote mean? And then what are some implications of that quote for us? So here we go. All have turned aside. You see it right there, top of verse 12. All have turned aside. Where does this quote come from? Well, this quote, as well as the next two statements we're going to look at, all of the statements we're looking at today come from the same place, Psalm 
14, verse 3. Psalm 14, verse 3. Psalm 14, verse 3 says, They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. In verses 10 and 11, Paul, particularly verse, uh, yeah, verses 10 and 11, uh, Paul was kind of loosely quoting from Psalm 14. He was bringing out the meaning of Psalm 14, verse 2, but now we have pretty much a word-for-word quote of Psalm 14, verse 3. Uh, his quote in verse 10, his quote in verse 11, and now his quote in verse 12, all from Psalm 14. Now I should mention to you that Psalm 14 is unique among the Psalms in that it has a twin. Psalm 53. Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 are almost identical. Um, Almost identical. And so these verses that we are reading right now in Romans 3, they're not just spoken once in the Bible. And they're not just spoken twice in the Bible. These verses that we are reading are spoken three times. In some statements, perhaps more. Now, if the Bible said something once, it's true. Would we agree with that? If the Bible says something once, it's true. But when the Bible says something three times, often that means there's emphasis there. God wants us to know these things. God wants us to believe these things. These things are important for us to understand. Okay, so what does the quote mean? What does the quote mean, all have turned aside? Well, all have turned aside means that there was some path, some standard way along which people were supposed to walk and all people, all humanity, have turned off of that path. You might think of the Wizard of Oz and how Dorothy was told to follow the yellow brick road, right? Well, from the creation of man, God told man the way in which man should walk, the way in which man should go. And all humanity has wandered off. All humanity has turned aside and gone in our own direction. What is that way that God called us to go in? What was the yellow brick road that God set for humanity to walk in from the beginning? I know it's been a a couple of years now. Maybe some of you can think back to when we were in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. We spent a substantial number of services learning about something we call the creation mandates. The creation mandates. These were the commands that God gave to man at the very beginning. This was those beginning mandates, these beginning commands. This was God laying out for man that path in which man was to walk at the very beginning of his existence. These creation mandates were given by God to man, telling him why he was created and how he was to live. They were a gracious gift from God. As man followed those mandates, as man lived in them, as man obeyed them, they would bring glory to God and have happiness in their own souls. But man turned aside from them. Now, what were, what were these mandates? Well, be fruitful and multiply. God created Eve, brought her to Adam, instituted this thing called marriage so that they would fill the earth with people created in the image of God. There was the mandate to have dominion over the earth. God called Adam and Eve to to care for the world He had given them. 
He gave them authority over the animals, told them that every green plant, except for one tree, was theirs for food. Just as God reigns over the universe and the cosmos, so human beings in the image of God would reign over the portion of the earth entrusted to them. They would imitate their God, reflect His glory by doing in miniature what He does in macro. That's what all the creation mandates are about. Right? Uh, man was to work the earth and bring order to it. God called man to use the gifts that God gave to him to bring forth good things from the earth. From the earth, man would create tools and technologies. Man would create musical instruments and all sorts of inventions. Just as God used his power and his wisdom and his creativity to create the earth and to create human beings, so God called man to imitate him. To reflect His image by using our power and our wisdom and our creativity to bring forth good and amazing things from this earth. What God did in macro, man was to do in miniature, reflecting the glory of the God in whose image they were created. As Adam and Eve and their offspring would continue to bring order to the garden, cultivate the wilderness around it as they multiply with their children and grandchildren, the, the garden of Eden, paradise itself, would expand outward, outward, gradually filling the earth until the whole earth was full of the knowledge of God and was a perfect heaven. This seems to have been what would have happened apart from the fall. God told man to worship God. Part of the, the creation mandates was to worship God. Man was to worship God by doing all these other things. But they were especially, however, to set aside the Sabbath day, to rest from these other things, and to enjoy communion with God, learning more about Him, adoring Him, worshiping Him. This was the original heaven. Man was created. God set before him this path to walk in, and this path to walk in was a pleasant path. It was a path full of joy in God. It was the original heaven. This is what we were created to be and to do. And of course, underneath all of these things, underneath those creation mandates, Adam and Eve were to trust the God that had made them. They were to love the God that, they, that had made them. They were to do all of these creation mandates out of hearts that love glorifying their God by reflecting His image in this world. Underneath those creation mandates was to be love for God, faith in God, commitment to God. All of these things were to be done from God, through God, and for God. But man turned aside. But man rebelled. We're still doing the creation mandates by and large. We're still multiplying and filling the earth. We're still using the gifts God has given us to do creative things. We're even still worshiping. But now, natural man does all of these things apart from the true God. The path that we were created to walk in was the path of living this life God had called us to live for His glory. We're still doing the things He called us to do. Worshiping, working, multiplying but now we're not doing them for the glory of God, we're doing them for the glory of ourselves. The whole point of all of it was that man should exist for the glory of God. 
The whole point was that as we fulfilled these things, that He would find delight in us, even as we found delight in Him. Now, instead of doing all things for the glory of God, we do them for the glory of ourselves. We seek to find delight in ourselves. Rather than, rather than having a family for the glory of God, we try and find our happiness in our families which is a well that will run dry and that will not satisfy. Instead of working in our vocations for the glory of God, we turn and try and find happiness in the work itself, which is a well that will run dry and will not satisfy. It was the Olympian turned missionary Eric Liddell who said when I run I can feel God's delight he was saying when I do what I feel I am called to do and I am doing it from God and through God and for God it brings great joy to me folks when you picture heaven don't picture us sitting on clouds playing harps it's not heaven there was work in the original heaven I believe there will be work in the future heaven but it will not be a burden It would be great delight as you fulfill your callings and the strength that God provides for His glory. That was paradise. But from this glorious kind of life that God gave to us, we turned aside. We continued fulfilling the mandates, at least in some form. But now it was all for the glory of self and not the glory of God. Man has debased himself. Man has given up something wonderful for something perverse and something awful. We've turned aside. Now, if that's what it means, and I think it is, that there was this path that we were created to walk in, namely, 1 Corinthians 10.31, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. That is the path that we were created to walk in. We have all turned aside. What are the implications? Well, for right now, the only implication I want to bring out is the very next statement. Because the very next statement is an implication of that statement. All have turned aside. Together, they have become worthless. One implication of us turning aside from living life for the glory of God is that we have become worthless. So let's look at that second statement. That second statement, together they have become worthless. Can you handle the fact that God says that about humanity? We do not live in a culture that takes kindly to someone saying that humanity is worthless. Where does this quote come from? Psalm 14.3. What is the meaning of this quote? Together they have become worthless. The meaning is that because we have turned aside into sin and rebellion, mankind no longer fulfills the purpose for which it was created. Let me say that again. Because we have turned aside from living life for the glory of God, fulfilling those creation mandates with loving, love for God and trusting God, because we have turned aside from that, we are no longer fulfilling. Natural man no longer fulfills the purpose for which natural man was created. We were created for a relationship with God in which we find pleasure living for His glory as His image bearers. 
He finds pleasure in seeing His own glorious character reflected back to Him through us. Now when God looks at those people created in His image and looks to see His own glorious character reflected back to Him, He does not find His own glorious character. He finds perversity. He finds wickedness. What He created to bring Him joy now brings Him disgust and abhorrence and grief. Now, just to be clear, it's not like God was surprised by this. I don't want you to think God did this and all of a sudden it was a big mistake and God messed up. God had a deeper plan. God had a better plan the whole time. The fall was no surprise to God. But this original purpose given at creation has been ruined by sin. And in that sense, mankind has become corrupt. Psalm 14.3 says, We have become worthless. As Romans 3.12 says. Remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount? Uh, Matthew 5.13 about salt. If salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Folks, that's a picture of humanity. We have become corrupt. Our usefulness for the purpose of God given at creation has been lost. And just like salt that has lost its saltiness, God is just and right to throw us out. To cast us into the furnace. The late James Boyce tells of an interesting story about Michelangelo. He saw it in a biographical movie. It says Michelangelo, while he was painting the Sistine Chapel, was unhappy with the way it was turning out. He was looking at what he had accomplished so far as he was painting the Sistine Chapel. He was not happy with what he saw. In his unhappiness, trying to decide what he was going to do, he went to a local bar. The bartender served him some wine drawn out of a new barrel. When Michelangelo tasted the wine that had come out of this neat barrel, it was very sour. And he shouted at the bartender, This wine is sour, bartender. So the bartender came over and he he took a taste of the wine himself and immediately spit it out. And then he walked over to the new wine barrel from which the wine had came and he took a, a wooden hammer and he struck the bung of the barrel so that gallon after gallon after gallon of the wine just flowed out and into the streets of the city. And then he turned and he exclaimed, if the wine is sour, you throw it out. Well, according to the story, Michelangelo reflected on that, went back and looked at what he had done in the Sistine Chapel and decided it needed to be thrown out. And he took down every piece of artwork he had done and started all over again. Well, in the same way, dear friends, all humanity has become corrupt. All humanity has become worthless and useless and is headed towards hell. But God has determined to start again by creating a new people for himself. 
This is what God does through the gospel. He exchanges old hearts for new hearts. He takes old humanity and brings new humanity out of it. This is what a Christian is. A Christian is someone who was once part of that worthless, corrupt old humanity, headed for destruction, ready to be thrown out. But now through Jesus Christ, we have been made new, a part of a new humanity, headed towards the new heavens and the new earth, in which we will be purified and perfected and will glorify God forever. Christian, do you know that about yourself? Do you know that's who you are? You've been redeemed. You've been, you've been brought out. You've been plucked out of the old humanity, headed towards, towards the furnace. And you've been made new. Your soul, anyway. You know you're a new creation soul in an old creation body. Your body's still going to die. God's throwing your body out. It's going to disintegrate. And yet, there's going to be a resurrection. And it's going to be made new and perfected. And then you're going to have a new creation soul and a new creation body. What is the implication of this quote? One implication is this. That it is only through Jesus Christ that our lives can again have real God-centered meaning and purpose. It is only through Jesus Christ that our lives are not worthless at least as regards the glory of God. It is through Jesus Christ that we go from being corrupt and worthless to pure and useful and meaningful. Now please understand, if God had never saved me, if God had left me in my sin, I would have gone to hell. And my life would have had a purpose. The eternal purpose of my life would have been to display the righteousness of God's wrath against sin as He poured out His righteous indignation upon me forever. Even as a sinner being punished in hell, my life would have brought glory to God. But that's not the same thing as actually living with a God-centered purpose that brings glory to God. I don't think any of us in here want to bring glory to God in that way. We want to bring glory to God by being what we were meant to be at the beginning. In heaven, in the new heavens and the new earth, we will actually live with a God-centered purpose. Christians, for all eternity, will use their God-given gifts and abilities to serve Him and fulfill their callings. That ought to begin today. We will have real, meaningful, lasting purpose in heaven. We will live each day for the glory of God in heaven. And if we are Christians today, that should begin now. The very moment that we turn from our sins, the very moment that we trust Jesus Christ, we are called to begin experiencing that kind of meaningful, purposeful, useful Christian life. As it was in the beginning, so now it should be for Christians. If God has brought us into marriage, if God has given us children, we are to be fruitful and multiply for the glory of God. 
We are to live lives in our families for the glory of God. We are to take care of this earth for the glory of God. We are to work hard at whatever vocation God has called us to, striving for excellence, seeking to work in a way pleasing to our Lord. Christians are to be hard workers and hard thinkers. We're to be creative people, faithful people, people of integrity in our workplaces. We're to worship on Sundays and spend these days uh, in rest from our regular labors, but instead worshiping God, adoring God, communing with God. All that we were meant to be in the beginning, Christians, by the blood of Jesus, can now be today. This is life as it was meant to be lived. And only because of the cross can you now live it. And how sad when Christians are now free to live the life as it was in the beginning, but we choose not to do so. This is what a Christian is. Someone who now, by the blood of Jesus, has been made able to live a God-centered life. A life of purpose and use. Let's spend our last minutes together on this last statement. No one does good, not even one. No one does good, not even one. Where does this quote come from? It comes from Psalm 14, verse 3. What does this quote mean? It means that there is not a single natural human being who truly does good things. Apart from the grace of God, apart from the Spirit of God, no human being does good things. On an earthly scale, we might say that people do good things. We, we might compare people one to another and say, well, that person does better deeds than, than that person does. But before the eyes of God, according to God's standards, no man can truly do any good thing on his own. Isaiah 64, verse 6. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Some of you may remember the translation, filthy rags. In, In ancient Israel, when a woman came into her time of the month, she would be declared unclean and sent outside of the camp until that time was over. The menstrual cloth that she would use to clean herself is the kind of polluted garment that God is referring to in this verse when he says, your righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. God is saying that all people have become unclean and that even our best deeds, even our most righteous deeds in our earthly scale are still before God like a filthy rag. Why? Well, this is the truth of total depravity. That there is no part of our lives not ruinously tainted with sin. Natural man can give to the poor, but there will be sin involved. Natural man can share with his neighbor, but there will be sin involved. 
Natural man can even pray, but there will be sin involved. No human being, the Lord Jesus Christ accepted, has ever done a truly pure act of his own will. One old theologian put it this way, you could sooner get oil out of a stone than you can get a truly good deed out of a natural human being. And we could go further. It's not just that sin is involved. It's that true goodness is absent. According to God's standards, nothing is truly good unless it is done from God, through God, for God. From God because He has called us to do it, through God and the strength that He provides depending on Him, for God, for His own glory. That is what makes a good act good. That is true righteousness. An unbeliever, a natural human being, cannot do that. Here's another way of looking at this. Maybe it will be helpful to you. Simply remember that God is the source of all that is truly good. If a man tries to produce some good deed apart from looking to God, he cannot do it. It's like your water hose at home. As long as the hose is connected to the spigot, you can get water, right? But simply take a water hose... Without a spigot, you cannot get water out of it because it's not there. Well, you and I were not created to be the spigot of goodness. You and I were not created to be the fountain of goodness. We were created to be sort of like water hoses through which the goodness of God flows. So disconnect us from God and no goodness is there. Connect us to God and then from Him, through Him, for Him, goodness can come through us. How do we connect to God? Faith. What do unbelievers not have? Faith. And all of us in this room at one time were like disconnected water hoses trying to bring goodness out of ourselves. Every good and perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights, James 1.17. Good can come from us, but only if we are connected to God through faith. Um, Paul will teach this later in Romans. Romans 14, 23. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Natural man does not have faith. Therefore, everything that proceeds from natural man, even his best acts, are sin. That's pretty radical corruption. Wouldn't you agree? That means everything you've ever done and everything you've ever said apart from faith was marked by sin. What is the implication of this quote? The implication of this quote, and this is how I want to end the message, is that only through Jesus Christ can people truly do good things. Before we are saved, we can do no good No one does good, not even one. That's very clear. Before we are saved, no one does good. We can do no good. But what about after we're saved? Can we now do good deeds? 
A Christian is to live in faith. This means that we look to God to know how we are to live. We depend on His strength and His power working in us to help us obey Him, and then we obey Him for His glory. Everything that a Christian does in genuine faith is a genuinely good act. Christians are the only people in the whole world who can do a genuinely good deed. Isn't that remarkable? We can give to the poor because God has told us to and the strength that He provides and for His glory. We can share with our neighbors because God has called us to because of the strength that He provides and for His glory. We can do truly good things because of the new heart that Christ has given us and because of the grace that we have through Him. Any, true, any deed that is truly done in faith is a good deed. You can do good works, church. You can do truly, eternally good works. You are not saved by doing good works. The whole reason you were saved is so that you can do good works. Ephesians 2.8, you know, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Ephesians 2.9, Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Very clear, we're not saved by good works. How do we know? Well, because we have none. Ephesians 2.10, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The whole reason you have been saved by grace is that God has work for you to do. Truly good works. You were created in Christ Jesus at the moment you were born again so that you can do good things, so that you would be connected to the spigot, so that good stuff would flow through you and be a blessing to this world. And so, dear Christian, is your life marked by good works? Are they springing out of you from a heart of faith? Now, as Christians, we're not yet made perfect. We are new creations, living in the old creation world, in old creation bodies. We still have old creation desires and temptations constantly popping up. And because of this, while we can do truly good deeds today, all of our deeds today will still be touched by sin. You understand that. It's a truly good deed. It's an eternally good deed, but it's still touched by sin. And it's only because it's sanctified in the blood of Christ that it's acceptable before God. There will be a day when we will be in heaven and we will be purified and we will be perfected and we can do truly good deeds that are not even touched by sin. Before you're saved, you can do no good. Once you're saved, you can do truly good things though they will be touched by sin. In heaven, you will be able to do good deeds and there will be no sin there at all to stain them. This is the gift of God given to us in Jesus Christ. Jesus, through the gospel, makes bad people good. Here's the thing. 
the only way anybody can ever be saved is they must first admit that they're bad. A person must admit that he or she is a sinner in need of a great miracle, in need of a great change in order to be made right. A person must be willing to admit that they cannot make themselves good. They are in need of a Savior. Dear friends, Jesus came to save you not only from the punishment of sin, but from the power of sin. But you must admit your need of Him. You must go to Him for salvation. You must run to Him in your heart and confess to Him your need. I want to do good things. Oh God, by Your grace, I believe in my heart. I really want to do good things that honor You and glorify You. But I can't. Lord Jesus, come save me. Lord Jesus, come change me. Lord Jesus, give me a heart that can do Your will. And then you follow Him in baptism. You get into a good church and you take advantage of the means of grace and as you trust the Lord Jesus, He uses all of these things to begin doing truly good works through you. Christians in this room, are you not thankful for the grace that God has shown you? Though we had turned aside, though we had made ourselves corrupt and worthless, God has changed us and is changing us through Jesus Christ and He has made it where we truly do have meaning, truly do have purpose, truly can do good things as we look to Him. And so are you looking to Him? Are you looking to God? Are you looking to Christ? Are you looking to His Word? Are you seeking to do the good works that He prepared beforehand that you should walk in them? Are you seeking to live a life of blessing to others from God, through God, and for God? Mount Hermon Missionary Baptist Church, because of Jesus Christ and the salvation He's given you, now let your light so shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let's pray. this time I would simply call you to reflect for a few moments on what has been said.